Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. This is, and this is what you would have been taught in motivation and emotion. Again, by the way, when I, when I say this is a standard social science model, I'm not trashing the data from that era, that kind of approach ever, because the data very often are great. And I'm also not trashing um, even necessarily the ideas, it's just that there's stuff that they're missing more than anything. Um, in the standard social science model approach, the idea is that motivation is, uh, energizes behavior, and emotions are combinations of arousal, behavior, experience. So a lot of you, I think, probably took motivation last year and emotion uh, from, from Kathy, and I'm sure she would have led it that way, because it's the standard way, and there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> so motivations energize behavior, and emotions are a combination of arousal, um, behavior, and experience. Um, should these be separate? In fact, they were separate courses here at Algoma. Uh, the last time they were taught as separate courses was last year. Starting next year, there's a course called Motivation and Devotion because we realized that splitting them apart is actually kind of silly. Right? Uh, and that's more and more common now that places are splitting them apart. Or sort of putting them together. Same thing might be with sensation and perception something. You know, because it's kind of hard to... The question is, where does emotion begin... And, mo- uh, and motivation began, and vice versa. Right? So should those be separate things? Emotion can be thought of as the behavioral response to our goals being advanced or hindered. Think of it that way. And motivation basically is goal directed behavior, you think about, right? Hunger, thirst, be horny. It's goal directed direct behavior. And then emotion, if, if, if it works or not. It's a way to think about it. I'm not saying necessarily that it's perfect. And emotions can guide behavior. And it's interesting because in the standard approach, we say that motivation guides behavior, right? Or, or, or it's goal-directed. Emotions don't guide behavior as a result. But emotions can guide behavior, too. We behave differently when we're angry than we do when we're happy. We behave differently when we're jealous versus when we feel shame. Just a few introductory ideas. Make sense? All right. Let's talk about instinct. Uh, you probably have already heard me say I don't like this term. Um, I don't like it because if we think that something isn't learning, we just say, oh, it's instinct, thinking that that's an explanation. Right? So if, if you say, where does the, you know, when you, when you put your finger on a baby's cheek, it'll start to, it'll go towards the finger. It'll move its face towards the finger, like its mouth, and it'll start chuckling your finger. It's called, a, it's called a rooting reflex. So they're looking for a nipple. It's like that's a nipple, and they move over, and they start sucking it, okay? That's what babies do. It's one of the many great things that babies do. They, they do that out of the box, right? It's standard equipment on that model. There's no need for an upgrade. Okay, that's great. Now what happens? What do we say? We say, well, why does that behavior come from? So it's instinct. Does that actually explain anything? Well, I don't think it does. Right? Because if I change that word to Steve and said, well, why do they do that? Well, that's one of those Steves. Oh, wait a second. It doesn't actually explain anything. I call that the Steve test. If I can just name something Steve, it's because, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You're not giving, you're not explaining anything just by naming it. And this is something, like I said, called the nominal fallacy, and the social sciences are full of the nominal fallacy. (coughs) 
One of my, some of my favorites, examples of the nominal fallacy. Um, why, why do uh, black people make less money than white people average? And the answer, of course, is racism. And is that actually an explanation? No, it's a description. That's what racism is. Is it racism? Yes, of course it's racism. But this can't be that. But I'm saying you're not explaining it just by giving it a freaking name. Hmm. Or like, why are different groups, why would, um, let's pick two cultural groups. Let's say, I don't know. I don't really know all that examples of this. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Why do more Italians go to church than uh, non-Italians in Sault Ste. Marie? Let's pretend that's true. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It's possible. What's your answer? Culture. Yeah, that's a cultural difference. You're right. Was that an explanation? No, you gave it a name. It's a real thing, right? So I'm never discounting the, the, the phenomenon itself. So like I'm saying, if black people make, make less money than white people the same job, yes, that is racism, but you're not explaining it. You're saying there's, yeah, you're right, and I just gave it a name, so I guess I should feel pretty good about myself, and let's move on. There's no more, well, we can't do anything about it because I gave it a name now, and least I've explained it. That's not good enough. Well, it's culture, right? Culture's almost worse than people say that. Because you say, what's culture? They say, well, it's a you know, pattern of behaviors and, 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 and thinking that differ group to group. Right. So you're saying that groups differ because they differ, aren't you? Same thing with racism, right? You're saying, you're saying that one group is treated more poorly than another because one group gets treated more poorly than another, right? You're not explaining anything. You're giving it a name, feeling good about yourself, and walking away and saying, well, I explain that, let's move on. And that's what you're doing here with the word instinct. So I, went, I, went, I went for a long trip there, but now we're back to instinct. And that's what you're doing with the word instinct. You're not actually explaining anything by saying it's instinct. I thought evolutionary psychology was all about how everything was determined by the genes and in the biology, and that was instinct. That was my dumb guy. One of my dumb guys. I got a few of those. Everything needs experience. So like, if, if a baby never, which wouldn't last long, but if a baby never had that touch on the side of the face, it's never going to show that reaction, that reflex. If, if a person never hears language before they're four or five, they're never ever going to develop any proper human language. Now, one of the, so every kind of, Everything, every behavior needs experience. Just like that's the interaction principle. Another uh, criticism of the term instinct is how many instincts are there? I don't think that, and I think the book goes about that, I don't think that's that big of a criticism. Um, so, I don't think that's a problem. I don't see why that's a problem. People do those, so I thought I'd throw it in there. But I don't think that's that big of a criticism. Okay. So the term instinct, again, it just, you know, again, and let's think about it, people might say, like, motivation-wise, you know, why would you, if it's down to just you and one other guy, and you end up killing that guy, why does that happen? Well, that's your survival instinct. No, you described it again, right? You just said, I killed a guy to survive. So again, you're not explaining anything. There's always people having fun outside our class, aren't there? It's great. It's nice. It's, it's a happy place at home university, isn't it? It's a happy place. It's not a sad place. Okay, then motives. So motivation or motives, if you want, are some biological and some social. This is a, a this is something you might again something I think you would hear in a motivation class. Because frankly, it's a standard approach, and there's nothing wrong with the standard approach except that it's probably not wholly correct. <coughs> 
so especially so the standard social science model types, if you want to call them that, let's say that there are social emotions and or motivations and biological motivations. They might say that a social a biological motivation, hunger. Even your most ardent social science type would say, yeah, hunger is a biological thing. Yeah, it's totally socially constructed, man. There's just there's things hungry. So, I don't have to eat. I was just brought up that way. I blame society for making me eat. No, even, even those guys aren't that crazy. Though I have heard of people that claim that they live solely through breathing and call themselves, you think I'm, you think I'm making this up. They call themselves breatharians. Soon after that, they either call, they either call themselves I eat in a closetarian or they call themselves deadarians, right? Because you can't not eat. Then there's a guy who thinks staring at the sun's good for you. <laughs> then, then you can get nourished by literally staring at the sun. Again, I think he quietly closes his eyes. Oh, he's doing it. I hope so. The soon he'll be able to find the sun because he can't see. <laughs> so jealousy would be one. And shame and disgust. Let's think of these. As these sound like things that would be more social, right? Because biologically we can see thirst, we can see hunger. But you can see sexual motivation. So that makes some sense. But what about jealousy and shame and disgust? Yeah, please. You have a question there? Or are you just doing this? Do one of those? Okay. So, we know what these things are, right? That jealousy is basically the idea of feeling bad about thinking of wanting what someone else has or feeling bad about what someone else has done. It's a private thing, though. Shame is public, right? It's kind of the same. It's kind of like shame is the public version of jealousy. They're both bad emotions, but this is one that when you feel like you've done something to the group. Right? And jealousy is like when someone, a single person usually has done something to you. Right? Those sound like things that would be, again, in the standard social science model approach, those sound like things that would be pretty socially motivated. They would be socially constructed, if you want to use that term. They would not necessarily be biological. Disgust is another one. Some, you know, some people find some things disgusting, other people find other things disgusting. So, again, you might think, There's, this is a great example of something that is socially driven. It's not biological. Because think about it. Think about food that some people eat and other people's like don't eat, like different cultures eat and don't eat, right? If it was 10 years ago, none of you guys would eat sushi. sushi. Probably. Less likely. Now you know, everybody goes to the sushi place and has the sushi. Enjoys the sushi. Loves the raw fish. I love the raw fish. Everybody likes that. 10, 20 years ago, I hate to say it, especially here, um, people weren't eating a lot of, a lot of the sushi. Right? Go the other way, too. I'm not saying we're great because, I mean, an awesome, oh, we're, we're not, every other culture's great and awesome. Because I know when Pizza Hut opened in China, they got great criticism from locals saying, why would you eat rotten milk? <laughs> Cheese. Yeah, so that. I think the biological properties of those are uh, pretty obvious. I mean, if you look yeah. at disgust, say biologically, um, the idea that there's a taboo on incest and people are disgusted by that yeah. in cultures because, well, it's not exactly. Um, <laughs> no, it's not, it's, it's not good for your genes to do that. There's no, there's no argument there. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I mean, it's the same thing with sexual jealousy, right? Um, it makes sense to be jealous when your partner's hanging out with someone of the opposite sex. The same sex is a problem. 
Because the chance of them usurping your reproductive success with someone who they can't, literally can't have a baby biologically with, isn't really a problem. Right? And it's interesting, when we get into jealousy, you can take a look at the differences between um, men's sexual jealousy and women's sexual jealousy. Because men, women's sexual jealousy is more about, isn't as much about sex as it is about what your woman is doing, uh, what, what the guy is doing with this other woman. And it's not, when I say doing with, I don't mean like, you know, what women is doing to sex. I'm talking about like being close friends. Women are a lot more jealous of that. This is on average. So don't, if the girl's name is thing, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, fine. On average, studies show this, the crazy game of classes work shows this. If women are more jealous of when their partner is with another person of the opposite sex, this is of course all these heterosexual relationships, and they're having a close emotional relationship. But think about what women in a human pair want. They want strong um, emotional ties because they want to keep the guy around to help raise the baby. They know it's theirs, by the way. Women, men never really know it's their baby. They can't completely know. Women always know. I saw it come out of me. It's probably mine. <laughs> There's little chance this was implanted in me late at night. And even if that's possible today, it wasn't on the savannah 200,000 years ago. Right? Well, there were aliens back then. Um, so it's interesting. So women, it's that. Men, it's the other way. Men don't care if their girlfriends or wives have close personal friends that are men. Their biggest concern is, are you, are you screwing them? <laughs> now, again, I'm not saying that women like when their boyfriends or husbands screw around. And I'm not saying that men like it when they have their wives or girlfriends have um, closer personal relationships with, with other men than they do with them. But I'm saying that the rank ordering is reversed depending on the sex. So, I mean, yeah, there's no doubt with these things. But those things were always thought of as sort of socially constructed things. Disgust is interesting because it's universal. Um, part, of the, part of the stuff that's universal is the, the, the expression of your face. And it looks like this. You know, the ew look. It's the ew look. You scrunch up your nose, squint your eyes, and yet it's, it's your tongue goes to the back of your teeth and it actually pushes stuff out of your mouth. Okay? And the function of this behavior is to get nasty stuff out of your mouth. You can, you can get this behavior very simply out of a newborn baby. Put, dip your finger in some vinegar and put it in the baby's mouth. And watch this. Exactly, they'll do that same face. Then give them something nice. Give them, you know, some milk or something because they're babies and it's not nice. Like they just got off, got into the plant. Everything was great. I was floating. I didn't even have to breathe. But now you're putting vinegar in my mouth. You know, so be nice. Lemon juice will work too. You know. Pickles. <laughs> Anything sour, really? And again, sour stuff is acidic and you want that out of your mouth. Right? And it's not that sour stuff isn't acidic to people in Polynesia or something. It's, it's, we're hooked up this way, okay? It's not good for you. So, we do that. So that's the function of it. And that doesn't matter what your culture is, okay? So depending on how your parents come from or where you come from, it'll work that way. Now, the interesting thing is, through learning throughout our life, we get made different things disgusting, depending. That's where our environment kicks in, right? We already have the disgust reaction to, to certain things. Everybody has it to sour things. And even if you like sour things, to this day, if you bite on a lemon, you'll still do that. You'll scrunch up your feet. You can't help it. It's a, it's a reflex. Right? It's a reflex. But we learn that other things are disgusting, and typically, 
Um, there's going to be a lot of variety in what might be bad for you. So we want to have that as a as something, you know, you wouldn't want to have that completely hardwired. The rooting reflex in a baby makes sense. What's going to be touching the side of a baby's face that's important? Well, the nipple. So you better have a thing when you move your mouth over and start sucking. Right? Because that's how you eat. That's important. On the other hand, what might or might not be bad for you really will depend on your ecology. So having that being a very general thing where, you, where learning kicks in makes a great deal of sense. And this is why we can get what we have the universal, the culturally universal reaction of, of, of disgust. We have, di- we have different cultures, different groups find different things disgusting. The one common thing is it's almost always about shit. It really is. It's almost always about poop, which is good because, you know, ingesting poop is bad for you. One thing, but it's interesting. So what's hooked up in disgust, it's almost, as I said, always about poop. One of the things that we've learned in our society, generally, is that places where you poop are gross. Right? And anything that hangs around poop is gross. We get disgusted by it. And um, Paul Rosin has done some cool work on this. So what he's done is he takes... If people watch, he takes a fly, uh, he takes a, a kitty litter box, and, he, and, and it's, it's sealed. It's never been used. He opens it up, he makes Kool-Aid in it, and he mixes it with a fly swatter. And again, it's sealed, the fly swatter. He opens up. It's not like it's ever been used before. So he's mixing up the sugar and the water and the Kool-Aid mix in this. And then he says, you want some? <laughs> And people go, no, that's okay. <laughs> and, and he'll actually, and then he'll ask people, why? And they say, it's gross. And he says, why is it gross? Well, that's a fly swatter. And that's a kitty litter box. And you know that there's never been any cat crap in here. And there's, this thing's never hit a fly. And he goes, yeah. But think about it. Cat shit. And what if flies hang around on? Shit. So people won't ingest something that's perfect that they like. People like Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid tastes great. Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Old. (coughs) Smoking for Kool-Aid. I'm pretty sure my son would drink it right out of a kettle of the box. Oh, it's Kool-Aid? A free Kool-Aid. You just jump into the goddamn Roll around, he wouldn't, he wouldn't roll around it. He's, he's not that bad. He might. I think he might. So it's interesting that that's a case where people even, that what's been hooked up to the disgust mechanism, right, is, is overriding logic completely. Completely overriding. Because you, you look and say, no, there's no way this is bad for you, but I'll skip it, thanks. I would love to watch that experiment, right? Because you come into some of these studies, what happens is you do something that's not the real experiment. Right? Like you do, like some, you fill out some questionnaire, he, he doesn't care. But while you're doing that, he's mixing up Kool-Aid in a kitty litter box with a fly swatter. I would just love to talk to people at the debriefing part of that experiment. <laughs> what did you think the experiment was like? I don't know, but they thought it was insane. <laughs> you know, so I think that would be great. It's fascinating stuff. And it's culturally universal, universal, like most facial expressions. Fear, anger, happiness, disgust, surprise. And there's shame everywhere. Just trying to learn their procedures. So this, this is um, Eklund's work. Um, he found a woman in the 1970s, quite clearly. <laughs> um, so it's Paul Eklund's work. It's great. It's great stuff. Okay. So let's see. Which one is fear? Can you pick it out? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can, right? And disgust is here, right? There's some happiness. I think she's sad. And 
She's been eating Kool-Aid made in a, <laughs> in a kitty litter box. Actually, you've seen the show Lie to Me? You've seen that? Did you see it? Kind of good. The character, the main character is based on Ekman. Ekman did not ever, however, run an organization that detected liars through facial expressions. But a lot of the stuff they say in that show isn't completely false. Like, it's not like you're just making it up. Like, the, the psychology is actually okay. But the facial expressions, micro-expressions, detecting lying by what the expressions on people's faces, that's just actually pretty, they've done a pretty good job of that. But there is no guy that, that you know, that's not the same. He's just a professor at Stanford. What Ackman did, though, is he went all over the world, like the guy in Lie to Me, uh, talking about people's facial expressions and emotions. And he asked people all over the world, he had them explain a, like he'd say, what would your face look like if you, and he told them a sad personal story, and it looked the same everywhere. He told them a funny story, it looks the same everywhere. Something disgusting, looks the same everywhere. The look on the person's face is the same. He also then would use the words in the local language to describe these emotions, and they look the same. Make the face for happy. Looks the same everywhere. Now, think about it. What are, what are emotions doing, uh, facial expressions of emotions? They're doing nonverbal communication, right? And in chimps, there are facial expressions that are universal. No matter what chimp society you live in, I don't know, they call that. You know, by the way, you know what a bunch of chimps is called? Like a, you know, like a flock of seagulls? Or um, a herd of cows, a murder of crows? You know what it's called with chimps? It's a committee. It really is. It's called a committee of chimps. And I'm on... And it's, it's apropos, man. So what's going on here? Well, actually, um, you know, this looks like happiness in chimps. You know, like that's when the chimps, the chimps that live among us and smoke cigars, um, that looks like they're happy. Actually, if you're, if you're watching a movie, usually the older movies, and you see that kind of smiley face, that's actual abject terror in a chimp. It's fear. So what they've done in the movie, when they're making the movie, is they've scared the shit out of the chimp. And then they film it, and you go, aww. <laughs> right, so. Now why would, it looks a lot like our smile, though. Okay, here is, you ever heard what's called the Just So story? The Just So story is an idea that, um, it sounds really good, but we'll never know. And it just, it sounds just so, it's just nice. We don't know that it's true. And we probably never will know that it's true. So you'll hear that as a, as a criticism a lot of times of, of somebody who's trying to say that's a just-so story. And this is the just-so story for, for, for smiling, for human smiling. Um, well, chimps, what you're doing is, chimps are saying, I'm afraid. Well, if I'm going to be pleasant to you, if I'm no threat to you, I look at you and say, I'm afraid of you. So I do that with a smile. And you look back at me with a smile and say, I'm afraid of you. Now, evolution co-ops this because it was a signal of, I'm not a problem. I am no threat. And you're sitting back, I'm no threat. And evolution co-ops it and hooks it up to our emotion. Excuse me. Of happiness. I don't think I buy it. But it's a nice story. It's a nice story. But there are universally, uh, within chips, universal uh, facial expressions. Matt. What's the other one? Which one? Well, there's, there's this one here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, one of these other ones? Yeah. That is a threat display. Quite clearly, showing your teeth. I don't know if it's in the tour. Uh, this one is when they're going to take over the world. It's a playground where apes evolve from men. And uh, that one, I think that's a food call, actually. If memory serves, I think that's a food call. And I, I don't know what that one is on the top left. But I think that's a food call. You'll see a lot of um, a lot of animals do food calls. Like when they get food, though, they're calling it to their uh, family members. Basically, there's food here, and I think it's a food call. Okay, I think. I 
I love this stuff. Facial, facial, uh, our, our emotions are all, can feed off the expressions we're making. So our facial expressions can actually make us change our emotions. So in other words, pretending to smile can make you happy. So turn that frown upside down. <laughs> what are those things teachers used to say, right, in like grade four? Nothing you do can't be true. No, shut up. I got stuff I could do. I could throw things at you. I could lead a student rebellion. Personal experience, sorry. I never threw anything at a teacher. I didn't lead a series of successful and unsuccessful rebellions. Um, what they did in the Duclat experiment is they forced people to smile. How did they do that? You can't say smile because then that's the you know, demand characteristics of experiments, right? Because if I tell you what the experiment's about, or you get it, like if I say, I want you to smile for five minutes, then I'm going to test your emotion. You go, well, he wants me to be happy. And you feel like there's a question there appropriately. Because people try to help other people. So you know what you do? <laughs> they make people hold a pen and their teeth. Like this. For five minutes. And you're still going to keep your mouth open. It's like some lame-ass smile. But if they force people to smile, this is, it's actually kind of clever. How are you going to make people make a smiley-like face without telling them you're making them smile? Just do this. I don't know you, I think I'd be pissed off after you got five minutes. My mouth would hurt. However, um, then they filled out a questionnaire about their mood, and they felt happier than the group that didn't hold the pen in their teeth to help them. Huh. That's pretty cool. Uh, Ekman, uh, I mentioned Ekman before. Um, Ekman's done a lot of work with actors and emotion. And he's found, again, I don't know, you know about acting, right? It's fake. So, and when they show emotions, they're supposed to be acting, except they actually experience the emotions that can Even people that didn't use, you know, I know. You watch inside the actor's studio with that guy that flips the cards and has got the beard. And he says, you know, and then you experience the emotion and then you get yourself into the character and all that stuff, right? But even people that don't, act, don't use that kind of acting approach still feel the emotions, right? People like, I saw Harrison Ford on Larry King once, and he said, the you, Harrison Ford, that's my impression of, of Larry King, um, asked if he, if he actually uh, does he make people call him by the name of his, of his character on the set and does he get he says no I, I subscribe to the let's pretend school of acting I'm pretending one of the reasons I love Harrison Ford he's not taking his job that seriously um, but even those people feel those emotions right and I think look if you read a book and that make you feel sad and you really feel sad yeah or happy and you think to yourself, I mean, I, I had tears in my eyes at the end of, of Halo 3. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. Because <laughs> it is ridiculous. But I felt real, it was real emotion, right? I hope Master Chief's going to be okay. <laughs> I think Cortana will stay with me now. Halo 4's coming in soon, right? Yeah. <laughs> My son still won't let me play his Halo uh, 10th anniversary. I just want the achievements. I'm an achievement whore. And I just want those, and he won't let me play it. You're not playing my game, he says to me. He's got autism, so he says everything in a very direct manner. You're not playing my game. <laughs> but I bought it, man. I bought it for your birthday. So really, it's kind of mine. <laughs> doesn't really work. <laughs> then he said he's got one of my games. And I say, well, you can't play uh, IL-2 Sterlovic. Yes, I can! And he slams the door. <laughs> and what am I going to do? I stand there thinking, well, I, I can't hit him. <laughs> partially because he's bigger than me almost already. So. Yeah, it's going to be great when he's 18. You can't play my game. <laughs> it's it's going to be an entirely different experience, you know. Because he's, he's like that. He's a big boy. All right. Um... Emotions have a few different dimensions to them, right? 
So when we experience our emotions, uh, they can be pleasant or unpleasant, right? So happiness and sadness by definition. Um, arousal, they can be arousing or make us kind of sleepy. Uh, they can last longer, be a short time, a term thing, right? That's, that's a few of the different things. What? Is that blah, 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 blah? Yes, I know. It's what it feels like to me, too. You speak out here years ago, mid 90s. He was a stats, taught stats for, for business, and he was from New Orleans. We were pretty good friends. We used to break into each other's classes and just criticize the other guy, just walk out and watch what the students would do. It was funny. You can imagine a six foot three guy with, with an accent like this, wears cowboy boots, just walking in here right now, making fun of me and leaving. <laughs> that's, that's what he would do. And then I'd go in there into his classes and make fun of his accent. You know, it was great. Um, Izzard in 1977 said there were 10 emotions. Now, this, I don't know why, but this has become kind of a standard thing. So we've got joy, excitement, surprise, sadness, guilt, anger, disgust, contempt, fear, and shame. Now, the idea then is that all other emotions are combinations of these. Okay? Now, I don't care what Izzard said. I mean, I, it's something that people seem to like. I mean, people study emotions. But I, I don't know that I think it's the greatest thing in the world or anything. But that's what Izzard said. So, I don't know. Um, anything missing there, anything? I don't see, I don't see love. Is love an emotion? Is love an emotion, you think? No, I don't think it's an emotion. Eh? Um, I don't see jealousy. Jealousy is maybe contempt and and shame. No. What do you think jealousy would be? Contempt, fear, shame, and anger. Yeah, maybe. Or contempt and disgust. Oh. Yeah, maybe. So you can see this can be useful. I'm not saying it's, you know, but it's, it's not an uncommon way to put these things together. So fear. Um, thank you. Um, fear is pretty adaptive. It's the fight or flight response, right? So it, it, it's, a, it, it's an adaptive thing. The fight or flight response is adaptive. You know this. It, 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 if, if you've ever you know, genuinely been afraid, I don't mean watching a movie. I mean actually afraid. Right? So maybe you were in, a, in an actual fight, not like a, let's say, a wrestle. I mean, I remember wrestling in school, and you would feel the same kind of reaction. And I guess it's adaptive because it, it, it blood rushes to your, you know, your skeletal muscles and stuff like that. But it's not like I was in any danger. Right? But if you've ever been in any danger, the fight or flight response kicks in. It actually is adaptive. So I think we can see what that is too. The thing is that humans can learn to fear. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Sophie. Sorry, I actually have a question. I always see this, the fight or flight. But then when you look at it from a clinical perspective and when you're in counseling and stuff, specifically yep. for like sexual assault and stuff, yep. they always talk about this extra F, which is the freeze, which is very common with people who have been, say, raped or attacked. Yep. Instead of fleeing or fighting, it's like they just freeze and they often feel guilty because they feel like they allowed someone to do something. Right, 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 right. And it's one of the ways that people explain that it's common. Some people just freeze like a deer in headlights. Mm -hmm. They can't move, they can't yep. speak, they just... Well, I mean, and you can see how that can even be adapted, though, because if you play dead... Yeah, exactly. So I'm, like, wondering, why do you never... I'm always seeing the fight or flight in these classes. It's always been called that. That's what it's always been called that. Yeah. And, I mean, when you think about it, in most animals, that is what happens. Right? You run away or you fight. Um, it's pretty rare that you'll just be par like, literally sort of almost paralyzed by fear, right? Um, 
But yeah, I would think that that's that's the that's the plain dent thing, you know. Um, but yeah, I've not I've not heard it called that, but I'd be be surprised that that doesn't belong there. Yeah. Say, oh, just play dead if you encounter a bear. It's like, yeah, no way I'm no. playing dead. When All I, I have to do is make sure I can outrun you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I don't have to outrun the bear. Just got to outrun you. <laughs> right? You know that joke, right? You've got that down inside your shoes. Yeah. You're not going to outrun the bear when you lift your running shoes on. No, I just have to outrun you. I don't really care about outrunning the bear. But if you've ever had this, if you've been in an accident perhaps, uh, or a near miss driving, uh, and it takes time for this to kick in. It takes 45 seconds or a minute uh, because it's a hormonal thing. So it's not something that happens instantaneously. It's in your autonomic nervous system. So it does take about 45 seconds. And I remember we had a near miss on Highway 69. I've told some of you guys this before. Driving home from a podcasting conference, actually. Um, and a car, or a truck rather, the 418-wheeler just missed us. And it was like, my wife was great, so she did a hell of a job. And then I said, now you're going to get, re- your heart's going to be really fast, your mouth's going to get dry, your pupils are going to dilate, so everything's going to seem bright. It's totally normal. And it's going to happen really, really soon. You might want to pull over for a little bit and just calm down. And she's like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm like, Whoa! You know, because it, it does hit you. It takes some time, though. Right? It's not instantaneous. It's not instantaneous. You can learn fear objects, too, and that's something that we learn through observation. Uh, as humans. We don't just fear objects that have hurt us. We might fear things that our parents feared. Right? I'm afraid of bees, and I'm sure that's because of my dad was afraid of bees. Right? I'm sure it's because my dad was afraid of bees. I've been stung by a wasp. It's painful, but it's not the worst experience of my life. But I watch my dad, like, my all-time hero, run away from bees. It's like, well, they must be worse than Hitler. I, I, will t- I too shall fear bees. <laughs> but nobody's afraid of houses, eh? Right? Nobody's afraid of things that are adaptive. Nobody is, and being afraid of bees is kind of adaptive. Not to the point of being debilitating, but like not, not doing what that guy, remember the guy walking with caveman, puts his hand in the bees, throwing the honeycombs down to the bottom, and that idiot's eating them, getting stung in his mouth. Mm, delicious honey. Oh, God, it hurts. But nobody's afraid of houses. Nobody walks down the street going, oh, I just don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> houses really frighten me. <laughs> Could we live, I don't want to, can I just live in a hole with a tarp on top? I don't want to live in a house. Houses are scary. There's nobody, you don't hear houseophobia. Yes, he's a Mazonophobe. <laughs> see how I turned another language with Maison. He's a domiciliophobia. <laughs> so people are afraid of how people are afraid of moms. Maybe you're afraid of your own mom, but you're not afraid of mothers. You don't see someone with a baby carriage walking the street. Christ, get away! <laughs> you don't do that, do you? You're not because moms are safe. Interestingly, people aren't afraid of airplanes. They're afraid of heights, but not air. They can be afraid of flying, but not airplanes themselves. You know what's really interesting? is even people that have lived through air raids in their towns are not afraid of airplanes. They don't like air raids very much, but really no one does. But they're not afraid of airplanes. People are afraid of flying. They're afraid of airplanes. The key thing in all this is probably the amygdala with fear. And there are uh, genetic effects too. It looks like the people that, when you look, like if you look at twins uh, compared to for, 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 you know, identical twins versus fraternal twins and looking at their fears, they're more similar for the monozygotic or, or, or you know, uh, identical twins than for the fraternal or dizygotic twins. All right, questions about that? But it is interesting. No one's afraid of, people are afraid of snakes. Sharks, right? And, they, and they're irrational fears. That's, of course, remember, these are irrational fears. I'm really afraid of a guy pointing a gun at me if he comes at me with a gun. That's not irrational. That's really quite rational to be afraid of that guy, right? It's irrational to be afraid of sharks when you live in Rocky Harbor, Newfoundland. And I use that as an example because my old friend Bianca was afraid of sharks to the point where it was debilitating to her. 
You would, you would, we used to cut out, she was worked at the bar. She was a, um, wait, like a uh, bartender at the Sweden Pub in Newfoundland, where I worked. And we used to cut out pictures of sharks and like put them in on the bar. These are things I would do to my own students. My own honor students. I would never do that to you. You're not. I'm afraid of whales, you know. <laughs> You're afraid of whales? Yeah, I do. It's scary. What? Anyway, it's not like a debilitating thing. They just make me uncomfortable. <laughs> No, I get it. Like, I think it's because I read Wobie Dick when I was too young. I'm a whale scared me. Scared? No, but like, <laughs> like you know when they have videos of pictures of like giant blue whales and their tails up? Or like beached whales? Terrifying. Can't handle it. Can't handle it. Have you seen that ever in your life? No. Good. Okay. I was going to say, it's just like my friend Bianca. There's no way that she ever saw a shark in her life. Rocky Harbor before and has no sharks. A beached whale is more scared than you. I mean, yeah, I know, but it's just scared because it's so big. That's what yeah. it is, because it's so big. That's what I, I think the same thing for so me. So big. Like, I can't imagine going on one of those last, last cruises and yeah. being on a boat in the water with no, like, I'm just... Yeah. Okay, I've seen whales. They're actually pretty cool. So you didn't watch Star Trek IV, then, Voyage Home, because there'd be whales here. <laughs> I love my whales. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the best drawing I've ever done in my life, by just to let you know. Um, anger is another one. Anger is a lot easier to detect than happiness, by the way. Think about it. I can see anger on someone's face. It doesn't matter what their culture is. Anything. I can see the guy's anger. Happiness is a little harder. People might hold it in a little bit, whatever. It's hard to hold in anger. Now, it makes a lot of sense that we can detect anger more easily than happiness because happy people aren't dangerous. Angry people are scary. They're dangerous. It means you are in danger. So if I can't detect your anger, it means I'm in danger. Right? I'm even more in danger. I'm already in danger because I'm with the angry person. Again, there's your fight or flight response. Um, and it's going big time when you're angry. And I think we've all had the experience when we are very angry of doing things that we actually know at the time are stupid. Not like stuff you look back and go, yeah, I was just angry, I'm sorry. But stuff like, while well, you're doing it, your mouth's moving and the little man in your head's going, shut up. Right? Or I remember my father getting angry. We had these rivet guns to, to pull pop rivets. Long story. But the, the teeth on them, the full of rivets, are about that big around. So they're just, they measured millimeters. And they got out of alignment. And he took the rivet gun out, and he actually, he was so pissed off, as he often was, and he took the teeth out. Instead of realigning them, he said, I don't know why I'm doing this. And he threw them. Because, see, now we couldn't work at all. Because the, the rivets, you can't find those little teeth on a shop floor. They were gone. Right? So the best thing you can do is calm down. <laughs> um, a lot of people talking about venting and all that kind of stuff. No, just let it out. Just let it out. Oh, come on, let it out. That doesn't work. Oh, this is making more angry. You know what you need? You need to just let it know you don't. You should use up the energy you have, the, the fight or flight response. Go do something. Go for a run. Go kill a guy. You know, pick a random stranger, take him out. That, by the way, I'm glad you're laughing. That was a joke. I was not suggesting you commit murder. This makes sense, though, right? You should... Go use the energy, go for a bike ride, whatever. But what people tend to do is they get more and more angry. And there's this bizarre, sort of almost Freudian notion we have that, well, it's all, there's a finite amount of anger inside you. And if we just open up the seal, the anger will come out. <laughs> and then you'll be fine. And all that's going to do is feed more anger, right? And think about it evolutionarily. It's 200,000 years ago, the other guys are coming to get you, so you're all both going, spitting each other like we saw. I mean, that should work you up more, shouldn't it? It shouldn't be like after doing it, for a while you go, I feel okay now. Let's let them come and take our females. 
<laughs> so it reminds me of grade school when they used to have you draw a bottle and show, okay, now put in this bottle all of the things that upset you or make you angry. Then open up the lid and you'll watch it be released and you won't feel angry anymore. To a school in like Northern California or something no, like I that? No, I went here. It was like this stupidest little school called Alexmere and everybody was just completely wonky. Wow. I got angry because a teacher came up and pulled the chair from underneath me and then pointed and laughed and had the whole class laugh when I was in grade two. And this is what they told me to do, as well as get a little ball. Apparently, I was the problem. <laughs> wow. Teacher's still alive because we should go find her. <laughs> no, but she did have a reputation of walking out in the middle of teaching us stuff because we were talking. And she'd tell us to teach ourselves multiplication. But she died, right? I don't know what happened to her. I can't believe teachers. Oh, man. They try things like that with my kid once, man. I go in there with a baseball bat. That's no, I'm serious. You want to you want to play tough guy? Let's see you play with, 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 with somebody who's forty instead of you know seven. Seven. Is that bending through other emotions? Like if you think I'm gonna vent my sadness, do you just get more sad? Yes. Because all you're doing, think about it. All you're doing in that case is you are making the. Uh, I'm trying to think about that. Was that what The sort of mood sadder, but. You're making your environment sadder by being sad. Think about what you do when you are sad, too. You remember sad things. Right? You don't remember... And this is why people often say, try to remember happy things when you're sad and think you have mood, right? So, I barely think about the time my bike was stolen when I was seven. But it, it, now and then it comes up when I'm not feeling good. Oh, I'm, I'm, my bike was stolen. So yeah, it's one of those things where, and being happy is infectious, it keeps you happy. People laugh more in a group watching a funny movie or, or, or something like that than they do on their own. Right? Except there's always one guy in the plane with his, air, his headphones on and he's watching like everybody loves Raymond or something. Which no one loved Raymond. But this guy, he's, Not funny. Secondly, shut up! <laughs> but now that you do that, they send you to Guantanamo Bay if you do that in the airplane. So. And here, here we go. Can't we all just be happy? This would be, wouldn't it be nice? And the answer, of course, is no, we can't. Um, it actually isn't very adaptive to always be happy. You should not be satisfied always with it. Think about this again. Maybe now, in fact, you can look around and say, what's your problem? We've all got food, we've all got shelter. If our 200,000 year ago ancestors saw the way we live now, after being amazed at the glowing lights in the sky and the, what kind of skins are these you are wearing? Um, then they would be like, and you can just go get food? You don't have to hunt it down? Right? But again, remember, we're adapted to the EEA, not really to now. So it wouldn't have been adaptive back then to be like, well, I've eaten now, I'm happy, I'm not going to worry about going hunting for a while. Right? And in fact, it makes a great deal of sense that small things should make us happy for long periods of time. Right? And in fact, one of the things that's often done in therapy is people are told to think of the good things that have happened in their life because we ignore them. We ignore them. Right? So a common technique that's used is write down five things good that happened to you today that made you happy for a brief moment. Because everybody, no matter how bad they're feeling, has five, and it can be anything as simple as um, I smelled <coughs> laundry that just came out of the dryer. Everyone loves that smell. <laughs> right? Stuff like that. Right? So that kind of thing, it feels good, but we don't tend to think about those things. They don't make us happy for one period of time because they really, again, adaptively, they shouldn't. Right? Being neutral is actually the most sensible way to be. Just being flat. Being like Vulcans. Don't be happy, don't be sad. I'm not, again, this makes sense evolutionarily. I'm not saying you shouldn't be happy. I think you're all too happy. You should stop it now. You're all pissing me off. <laughs> be more neutral. I want to see a bunch of emotionless automatons in this room. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I'm saying it makes sense evolutionarily, right? Okay. Now, when we talk about social emotions, one of the things that we want to do as individuals is make our genes, of course, our ultimate thing is get our genes passed on. One of the ways to do that, because we're social beings, in fact, we're some of the most social animals on this planet, is to cooperate. Right? I do something nice for you, you do something nice for me, or let's do something nice together. Let's work together. So that's an important thing for, for humans to do. Um, so, so it can be you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Literally, as it was with you know our ancestors, but also to this day, you help me out now, I'll help you out later, that kind of thing. But this can also be getting together to a common goal. Right? We, there's no way that just one of us could hunt down that mammoth. But get five of us together with some spears, we got a shot. Or maybe we could accidentally sneeze, knock a big boulder down, and then, you know, say to your friends, no, I meant to do that. That was my plan all along, and quite a cunning Neanderthal. This is where guilt, the emotion of guilt comes in, right? Because if I, I feel bad if you help me out and I don't help you out. If I've done something that society has deemed to be wrong, I feel bad about it. Unless I'm, in fact, we, we call people that don't feel that way, we say they're disordered, don't we? Right? So that's when I've just screwed one person around, I feel guilty. Typically. Now, shame is different. This is where I've screwed the whole group around. So it's interesting, we've got shame and guilt that are very similar to each other. But one seems to be about the group, that shame, and one guilt is about the individual. But they still very often are about their, 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 their social things. They're about cooperation. It's very basic math in is this counting? Look at this. Oh, I think it would be a TSL. I should make fun then, because whatever that their first languages are, they speak English better than I do. So that I do with their first language. These are interesting emotions then. So of course then I activated a idea, so I said, etc. Um, what about homicide? Life on the streets. It's a great show in the early 90s, homicide life streets. What is homicide if not violent conflict resolution? In essence, though, that is what it is. Think about it. I mean, if we were all smart and stuff, this wouldn't be that big a deal. A lion takes over a lion pride, he kills all, it kills the young. It's like, well, yeah, that's what you do. I'm not raising these kids. They aren't mine. I'll kill them. Is that, the, the, one, why do we study homicide? Well, first of all, it is violent conflict resolution. Simply, we have really good data here. You know why? Because it's a freaking big time crime. We collect numbers and with the statistics and the violence and your FBI and your RCMP and the various groups with other names. Uh, this, a lot of this work is pioneered by Marty Daly and Marvel Wilson at McMaster University in Hamilton. Their husband and wife. Men do most of the killing. This shouldn't surprise anyone in the room. Yep. Newsflash, men are more violent than women. Also, overwhelmingly, men are killing men. I am not saying men don't kill women. That would be stupid. I am not saying that any the murders are unimportant. That would also be stupid. But mostly, men are killing men. It's violent conflict resolution. In fact, Daly and Wilson 
um, also found that most homicides are for exceedingly trivial reasons. They're, they're, they're arguments that have gone too far. That's what they call conflict resolution. Right? It very rarely is a planned murder. Very rarely is it a you know, Soprano-style murder. Right. Most of the time, this is two guys having an argument about a football team, and eventually one pulls a gun. Right? Most of the time, it isn't random violence between two people, or sorry, one person, a bunch of people, like the, the guy that attacked uh, the, the theater in Colorado, or the Columbine incident, or Anders Berg Brevik. These are all horribly bad things. But most of the time, it's one-on-one, -on -one and it's one guy killing another guy for no apparent reason. And the explanation here that Daly and Wilson give is this is sexual selection. This is just male-male competition. And male-male competition gone too far. And this is the same in other species, too. We have male-male competition in all kinds of species before they fight over females. And I'm not saying, by the way, these are fights over women. Okay. A lot of times, in a lot of species, males will fight, and then the female will choose the winner of the fight uh, to mate with, okay? So this happens in a lot of species, including uh, all kinds of moose, caribou, things like that, for example. So what happens? These are this is ritualized combat. There is fighting, but it's not to the death, right? It's, just, it's a fight. Just like typically, people don't beat each other to death, shoot each other, stab each other. If you, if you get in a, in a fight, eventually one guy's like, he gives. Usually the one person doesn't kill the other person. Right? I've been in a fight since I was 19, but I mean, it never would have occurred to me to beat the guy to death. Guys, actually. That's pretty cool. It's two guys. Pretty good story, I'll tell it some time. And I made a great remark at the end. I will say that I said after I, I ran at me and I kicked him in the face like that. And the other guy, I punched the face. There's two, two hits. But I did say at the end, my work here is done, and I ran. <laughs> but I didn't get to say my work here is done, which I was pretty impressed with. Um, but I, it didn't even occur to me to say, well, now that they're both down, that guy's looking for his teeth, maybe I'll keep kicking him until he dies. Right? I want, I can leave now. So it's usually something that's got out of control. Okay, conclusions about this stuff. Evolutionary explanations help us understand emotions and motivations, and motives and motivations. Uh, also helps us understand that they are intertwined. There's a lot of learning going on here, and denying that there's learning would be ridiculous. Uh, and also, please don't justify your behavior with evolution. Again, just to make that entirely clear, you can't say, yeah, but, you know, I was wired to kill. I'm a man. Even O.J. Simpson didn't try that defense. Yes, O.J. Simpson references. A trial older than most of the
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.